Welcome to the Kickstarter Journeys podcast brought to you by Fundamental Games. Each episode will provide you with some insight and opinions about successfully funded Kickstarter projects from the creators themselves. Here's your host, Wes Woodbury, ready to learn about another successful journey from the popular crowdfunding platform. Enjoy! Hello everybody and welcome to another Kickstarter Journeys. Today we have with us Joe Slack. Joe is a game designer and writer that has been making his mark in the gaming industry. And I'm ready to talk to him today about some of the projects that he has worked on uh, and really dive into what his next project will be. Hey, Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing, Wes? Doing wonderful, thanks. Um, You and I actually had a chance to meet, I think it was about a year ago, when conventions still existed. I mean, we're in the time right now where we hope for conventions, but they're not really happening, so... Uh, we met at um, Falcon in Calgary, and you were promoting a different game at that time. So it's nice to be able to talk to somebody that I've actually physically met, because uh, I think in every other occurrence, I've only talked to people that I've known digitally. So um, nice to chat with you again, Joe. Oh, same here. It's a, it's a huge world, and uh, you know, unless you can find each other at a con, uh, many of us just know each other online. And we had seen each other around online, and we finally got the chance to meet in person. It was uh, great chatting with you at uh, Falcon last year. Yeah. Very good. And so to tell the audience a little bit about Joe, you have published three different books about uh, board game design and such. We'll talk about those after. You've also uh, done your own Kickstarter, which we'll dive into what happened there. And then you've published games through other people that have ran Kickstarters. And you're about to do your own Kickstarter called Relics of Rajavahara. So maybe first, let's talk about your thoughts on what Kickstarter is as a platform and kind of why why you're into it and why you're diving back into making your own. Sure. Uh, Well, Kickstarter, I find, is always a great way for a creator to get their vision out there, to gauge demand, and to see if their game is an actual product that people will buy. And and that really, the audience is going to gauge that demand. They're going to tell you whether or not, you know, this has enough interest, if there's enough popularity to get the game out there. And it's it takes down some of the barriers, uh, so not having to find a publisher, especially if your game is a little more niche, um, or if you want to maintain creative control, that type of thing. So I think it really allows a creator to uh, take control of their own destiny, try something out, and see if it works. And then even if it doesn't work the first time, it always allows them the opportunity to try that again. You can always relaunch again. So I think it's a great platform for that and for uh, creators to find their audience and, and build their audience from there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, j- just kind of like a barometer of what do people think of this game and then it, what kind of potential could it have beyond Kickstarter? Because Kickstarter really is just a fraction of the board game audience, but it's an important fraction, especially for somebody that doesn't have their name out there yet. Um, and you actually um, tried Kickstarter in the past, and it was an interesting little game called Cunning Linguistics, uh, Fun Laughter and Innuendo. And um, I, I went through and watched the video and, and read through some of it. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? And this was back in 2018 for anybody listening or looking for it. Absolutely. So it, it was the first game I ever made, and uh, it just came out of, you know, playing a lot of party games with a lot of friends, like uh, Cards Against Humanity and, and such. And, you know, those games were kind of fun the first couple of times we played it, and then we realized we were just seeing the same cards again. There were a lot of trump cards that kind of always won, and, you know, the, the novelty kind of wore off very quickly. And I found that, you know, I wanted to – I thought, you know, I can make something – that was a little more creative, a little more replayable and that type of thing. So I just started kind of 
you know, generating my own ideas and came up with the game myself. And uh, then I enlisted a friend who, you know, knew a little bit more about the board game industry and had been playing games, modern board games for, for a lot longer. And so we started working on that together. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just kind of for fun. And it was, it was before we really knew, or at least I knew that much about, you know, Kickstarter and the board game industry and how to go about doing things. And then I suddenly realized, you know, there were all these game designer groups and play t- what playtesting really was and everything. So it really evolved from there. And it was, it was, it was just a fun little project. And uh, from there I branched out and started making a lot of other games, but my friend and I, we, we kept talking about it, you know, should we launch this on Kickstarter? Should we not? Should we try to find a publisher? You know, what should we do? And we, we waffled back and forth quite a bit over, over a long period of time. And, and eventually I just said, you know what, we, you know, took the time to make the game. We did the Kickstarter video. And I think that the video came out pretty funny. We had some, some friends who uh, do videos and videography professionally and they agreed to do it uh, for us just to help us out and uh, you know we we like the look of everything we said i just said you know what let's just try it uh worst can go worst thing that can happen is we don't get funded uh best case scenario maybe we do get funded maybe it's our first game but you know we don't know until we try so we put it out there and it didn't succeed and i wound up canceling the the campaign early and a lot of that was just because i didn't really build the audience well enough uh, didn't really know if that was you know, the next big game or not, um, you know, like you said, doing that barometer, just just checking. And and that really was the test. And, found out, you know, there wasn't quite enough demand. I mean, it, it was great and fantastic to see people backing and even some people backing for, you know, up to $100, multiple copies and everything. So there was some support, but definitely not enough to uh, really go through it. And I think we set the funding goal too high and um, didn't engage the community enough. And I'd start to build a list, but I, I built it way too early, I think. And then I wasn't keeping them really um, warm, as you, as you know, some people say, keeping your audience warm and continuing to engage them and give them fun and interesting things. Um, so I definitely learned a lot from that. And uh, I'm going to take that forward into, uh, you know, any Kickstarters that I run in, in the future. Yeah, it looks like you did learn a, a couple of things there for sure. I mean, um, the funding goal, I think, was a big one. Being a first-time creator, that is such a a clinch or a, um, a factor in people deciding if this person is ready for it or not. And some games can get away with a $15,000 funding goal if there's minis or if it's uh, high art or that type of thing. But uh, some games will have to have a real low funding goal if they want to hope to be noticed or be considered. Uh, so that was a good learning that you grabbed from that one. And um, uh, the video itself had some interesting points to it, but I think it was about five minutes long. So yeah, I'm sure you learned from that one as well. It, it uh, definitely was too long a video. Um, yeah, I mean, you always hear nowadays, you know, one minute, two minute max. You know, you want to keep it short, more like a trailer, something that's going to keep people engaged. And um, even though it was it was really fun and funny, and and uh, a lot of people did did enjoy it and laugh over it, it definitely was way 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 too long, and we went way in, into it too much, and we should have kept it much shorter. So uh, that's a definite lesson, and definitely going to be keeping my uh, next video much much shorter. Yeah, there you go. I, I always want to do more of my videos and I realize how small two minutes really is. Like even the latest one that we did for uh, Die in the Dungeon, David had some fantastic ideas, but we had to just compress and cut and compress and cut. And he just did a wonderful job at cramming everything into that two minutes. You'll notice it's right at two minutes because we didn't want it a second over. Um, and that really is the key to getting extra playthroughs because anything that's longer than that, you don't get the full play and then you lose that experience. Absolutely. All right. Um, 
Now you went from doing that Kickstarter, and like you said, you learned some lessons. You still were very interested in game design, but you actually went on to continue designing games, but you had other people publish them. So what made you decide to do that jump from independent publishing to uh, selling your designs to others to publish? Well, I, I was never really totally set in stone with what I wanted to do. I mean, at, at first it was just, you know, a hobby, just something kind of fun and kind of see where it goes and before I really start to think about, oh, you know, maybe I can get this out to a broader audience than just, you know, with, you know, friends or at uh, local gaming groups and things like that. So uh, it, it was really when I started to think, oh, you know, what, what should I do? What do I want to do? Do I want to focus my time on designing games or do I want to more run a business and, and everything that goes along with that? As, as you know, Wes, uh, you know, there's all the marketing and promotion and uh, getting into manufacturer, working with artists. There's so, so much more involved in running your own campaign and running your own business. So um, after that experience, I was, I was thinking, you know what, I'm going to, you know, take a break from that, you know, learn some things, you know, I, I wasn't setting aside the the thought that I might one day run another Kickstarter. But at that point, I thought, okay, let me try the approach of, of pitching to publishers, see if there's any interest in some of my games. Because at that point, I had started to develop more and more games. And one of the other things was, I mean, I, I'm i doing this full-time now. I've been doing it full-time for almost two years now. And uh, But even before that, I, I always had so many ideas and so many games that I was working on. There, there would be no possible way for me to do them justice to... Uh, to be the publisher for those games and continue to put them out because, you know, you can only put out so many games before you wear out your audience. And, uh, you know, as a business person, you don't, you only want to put out so many products and be able to focus on them at the same time. So part of it was just, I had like just way too many games. So I needed to find other publishers uh, so I could at least approach them, at least have the opportunity to get them uh, pitched. And also it was a great opportunity to learn from those publishers as well. Um, two of them, uh, for a couple other games that I've I've been the designer on for other publishers, I had the experience and, and was able to help and assist with their campaigns, which I think is really valuable as a newer game designer to learn from somebody who has some experience, see how they're doing things, ask them questions, and just get involved in the process. So um, I, I, I like both aspects of it. I do like the you know, figure out the numbers and logistics. I went to school for math and statistics, so I'm, I'm all about, you know, figuring out numbers, and I like, you know, figure out logistics and, and figure out how it's all going to work and everything, but it, but it is a lot of work. And so I'm, I'm kind of taking a bit of a hybrid approach now. And uh, now just more recently, I've decided to, you know, try my hand again at self-publishing, uh, but I, I still have a whole bunch of other designs I'm already talking with uh, other publishers about as well. So I think I'm going to continue with both. I don't know if that uh, is going to be what I'm going to do forever, but uh, at this time, I, I, I like the approach of kind of trying, trying them both out. Yeah, it's good to have that kind of multifaceted approach because if one doesn't pan out, you're still working on the other. And sometimes both work out and you get that extra exposure from different publishers as well as your own. There's a few game designers, I think, that kind of work in that capacity. So that's cool to see. Now, you, um, the games that you saw published on Kickstarter, at least two of the most known ones, are King of Indecision, which funded earlier this year during a challenging time and then kingdoms candy monsters last year and both are very different looking games and i know you've had other game designs that are even different from these so what kind of inspires you to create these games and come up with these themes that are so different from one another well i i always think as a designer i don't want to make another game that's just you know a, a generic knockoff of the last one and and my, my brain is always thinking of ideas that are going in all different directions. I, I love trying different mechanics and combining them differently, uh, trying different themes and that. So I think I would get really bored if I just kept 
going with like one game or one mechanic and just branching off of that. So um, I just go kind of wherever my, my brain takes me. Um, and for these two games in particular, um, King of Indecision, that was just an idea. Um, I often just write down ideas as I have them for games and, and, I, and ideas around how they would work and that type of thing. And for King of Indecision, it was just, I had this, uh, you know, idea pop in my mind, King of Indecision. And then one day I just, I just wrote it down. I'm like, I never want to lose an idea, but I didn't know what to do with it. And it just sat in my notebook kind of thing. And one Saturday morning, months and months uh, after that, I just woke up one morning and I thought, King of Indecision, hex styles, going around collecting resources and this King's always changing his mind. Okay, I got an idea and I just set out to create the first prototype and, and try it out and, and it just evolved from there. So it just really came from a name. And I think that the name was kind of spurred a little bit uh, from a kids in the hall sketch um, it's a comedy troupe back from the 90s and they had a sketch that was about uh, uh there was a guy that was they called him the king of it, it wasn't king of indecision but it's something very similar to that i think it was um uh, king of empty promises and i think that just kind of got in my head maybe i just uh, mixed metaphors there or something and uh, it just kind of came up with that idea um but then for kingdoms candy monsters this was just really a, a story of just being involved in the community because that idea, that game, Kingdoms Candy Monsters, wasn't even my idea. It was actually another designer slash publisher who approached yeah, me. Yeah. And he, uh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, and uh, he approached me and said, you know, I, I see all the stuff you're doing in the community and how involved you're getting and that kind of thing. Um, can I talk to you about a game I'm working on? Maybe we can design it together. And I said, oh, well, tell me more about it. And he wanted to tell me about this this other game that he was working on. And I said, okay, it sounds kind of interesting. I, I don't mind, you know, trying it out. We'll see see how well we work together and that kind of thing. And he said, okay, it's going to be a big project. But in the meantime, I'm also working on this other game. It's called Kingdoms Candy Monsters. And I'm looking for some, you know, feedback and the playtesting. Would you mind, you know, taking and do some playtests with, with your groups and stuff? I said, sure, no problem. I'm always glad to help with that. So I took it to some groups and uh, uh, got some feedback on it. And I looked through the rules and I kind of tightened some things up in the rules and made some suggestions and sent it back to them. And uh, he really liked what I've been doing. And uh, he said, uh, you know, I, I'd done more with it in a few weeks than somebody else that he, he had asked for um, help with playtesting over the course of three months. So he said, would you want to design this one with me, be a co-designer? I said, sure. I mean, I, I like the, the look and feel of it. I, I can kind of see where it's going. Um, so we decided to co-design it together. But it was it was his brainchild. And, but what I did was I brought um, some different ideas to it because it really started out more of a, almost like a, a light party game where you're just kind of drawing a card, playing a card. And right away in playtest, people were saying there's, there's not enough decision making. Things are kind of just happening and it's kind of just a little too random. So I started trying other elements in it and made it more of an engine building game. And uh, my co-designer, he absolutely just loved it. He, he loved the direction it was going. He's like, yeah, just keep keep going in this direction. So we just kept playtesting and tweaking and, and making all these changes. And it, it changed from you know, this very light game into this really cool engine builder where you're, you know, having to collect sugar cubes and keep your monsters fed and uh, getting them more abilities. And it just became this huge engine building kind of a game. And it just it just really worked. And uh, with the theme and the art that he got done, which was phenomenal, it just really came together. And yeah, that that's kind of the story of how that game came together. Oh, that's very neat. Uh, just uh, I like the idea of the notebook. Uh, I like the idea of partnering up with others that have already designed. And they uh, and I've done that before as well, where they, they'll give you a rule book and tell you to play test it. And then they realize that there's so much more they could do with the game. Sometimes it's about cutting back. Sometimes it's about adding more. Um, but uh, I like how your ideas work together there. That's really neat. And then you've got a new game 
that you're working on that we'll talk about in a minute that has a whole different concept. And I, I love how that one works too. So we'll talk about that in a second. But I, I am curious, you designed or helped design those games or took charge, and but they ran the Kickstarters. You went through uh, one company with one of them and Analog Game Studios with another. Uh, what kind of strategies did you use as a game designer to help influence the Kickstarters once they were live? Like, Did you do um, any special promos of your own or announcements or anything? Yeah, so I, I tried to be involved and I uh, spoke to the publishers in both those cases to see, you know, what areas I could help with. Um, and uh, they were just very open to say, yeah, like if, if you just want to promote it, um, take it to places to play test, that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I had games, I, I, I took it occasionally to um, uh, uh, playtesting events and demoing events and conventions and that type of thing. But most of it was online. So just engaging with people I knew, I reached out to, you know, Everybody I knew, family, friends, uh, let them know about the game, that type of thing. Posted things on Facebook, uh, just got involved, just answered questions. Um, the publishers themselves shared art in different forums and, uh, you know, just an answering questions and that type of thing. So it's just more a matter of um, just engaging with people. And for King of Indecision in particular, uh, I decided I, th I thought it would be pretty cool if my wife and I played the game and we did like a live Facebook feed of it. So we played the game and uh, I, I won the first game and then we said, oh, oh, let's do this again. It was kind of fun. We had a bunch of people on and some people commenting, that type of thing. So we played again, it was it was kind of a rematch. And then my wife won and then we said, well, now we have to have a third match. Uh, so we played the uh, the third match and uh, that got that got some interest. Um, you know, that was just one amongst many things. So I think there's, there's a ton of different strategies you can use, but you know, just reaching out to the people you know, um, also, one thing I did for King of Indecision was uh, the people I reached out to and the people who had played it before at conventions and other events, I said, you know, would you mind rating it on BoardGameGeek? Because uh, you've already played it. Uh, maybe it wasn't 100% polished or, or finished at that point, but you played it when, you know, most of the mechanics were there. Would you mind giving it a rating? And a lot of people did. And I think it's a minimum of 30 ratings you need to get on BGG to actually have it like count. Um, and we actually broke that. And it, it was pretty cool to actually see it, you know, get a rating. And, you know, we could we could actually talk about that. We could say, oh, check out the BGG rating for this game. These are people who actually played the game and, and enjoyed it and look at their comments and that type of thing. And, um, and just being involved in the community, there were a lot of people who just were awesome. They said, hey, my, my friend Joe's cre uh, created this game. Uh, check, check it out. Or I played this game at this convention. You guys should, should go and look it out. So that kind of social proof when other people are promoting games because they were already fans. So that uh, definitely helped to, to push us over the edge as well. Yeah, social proof is a great one. And just getting the playtesters to actually do something after they've playtested or played it. I think that's one of the struggles I've had before is that um, I'll get a lot of people to print and play it. Uh, but then I'll, I'll get feedback from them, but there's no public proof of that. So I like your idea of getting them to actually go on your board game page and give you a rating, whether it's good or bad, it's their their decision or king of indecision in that case. Um, but I, I like the idea of them giving you some kind of public feedback that other people could see. So that board game geek, if you can get your game on the site early on, then any play test you do, you could actually reference that as a, you know, at least hit this. You don't tell them what to rate it. They just rate it what they want to. I like that. Good. Now, um, do you have any plans to see these games in retail stores? I know that uh, the funding level, they definitely both funded. I think the, uh, one was around 10,000. I can't recall what the other one was. Uh, do you have plans or did they, the publishers have plans to get those into retail stores? Are we going to see Joe Slack's name at the huh. local board game store? 
Well, hopefully. Um, I know with Analog Game Studios, with uh, Kingdom of Decision, they're, they're getting a lot of their games, uh, they're starting to get into distribution. So hopefully we'll see some of that happen. I know um, I know Richard, who runs Analog Game Studios, he was saying that there were some interested retailers um, even before the campaign. So I think he had uh, some orders lined up. So hopefully if that uh, picks up, um, that, that will work out. I mean, it's uh, in the process right now of being manufactured. So we'll see when that comes out, how much demand there is. But I, I definitely am hopeful about that one. And for uh, Kingdoms Candy Monsters, I know the, the publisher there, uh, Zemilio Entertainment, they are actively talking to uh, other places around the world, uh, specifically in, in Europe, but uh, hopefully North America as well. He's um, looking to uh, come to some kind of uh, agreement so we can get it into distribution as well. So uh, hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, uh, we'll see it in stores as well. That's right. Very good. Now, you have also written books, so um, not many publishers and designers get into that field, so you must have had some experience there. And you've not written one book or two, but you've actually written three books all about board games. One is about board game design, one is about publishing board games, and one is about uh, the most common mistakes people make. And all three of those are available on Amazon. I'll put the uh, link in the tab here. Uh, How have you felt the sales and feedback have been thus far? Oh, well, thanks for that, Wes. Um, I, I felt that they've been pretty good. I mean, especially my my first book, The Board Game Designer's Guide, it uh, it did very, very well um, right out of the gate. Um, I think it really uh, resonated with a lot of game designers, especially those who are just kind of starting out and, and were just trying to get their feet wet and, and learn. Because uh, what I what I did was really, I thought back after I you know had been doing this for three or four years and thought, you know, I, I've learned so much. I've got all these little pieces of information that I've gotten from everywhere. But then when I realized that there was no one single place that I could go to get all this, it was it was just kind of all over the place. It was so sporadic. Uh, so I thought, you know, I want to make the book that I wish I had when I started out three or four years before that. So that's right. what I really set out to do. And and I think it's resonated and I, I think it's been helpful. I mean, if, if I, you know, when I wrote it, I thought as, as long as I can help, you know, one or two people, I'd be really happy with that. And uh, it's it's done very well. And um, it's been out for for a little while now. And then my more recent two books came out earlier this year. Um, they haven't quite uh, hit the sales numbers uh, as high. I mean, I don't know if that's uh, partially due to COVID. It's all always hard to to say. But uh, and and they're also a little more niche too. Uh, my second one's really about once you're already working on your game, how do you go about pitching to publishers and uh, getting their attention and designing sell sheets and over videos and that type of thing. So it's a little more yeah. niche because it's, it's for people that are a little further along and, and, you know, not interested in the Kickstarter route or the self-publishing route, but they want to pitch. Um, and then my third book is really just talking about, you know, all the mistakes that I've seen and I've heard other people talk about and, and what they've experienced and how to avoid those same mistakes so that you don't uh, fall into those kind of same traps. And uh, I mean, it's only been out for a little while now. It just came out in May. So I'm um, hoping that uh, that picks up as well. Very good. Yeah. And you had a, a nice quote at the beginning, or at least on the website here, it says, uh, in quotes, without a doubt, if I had read Joe's book back in 1989, it would have accelerated my progress and potential as a game designer by decades. And that's coming from Jamie Stegmeier, who's uh, obviously a well-known designer of Stonemeyer Games, designer of Scythe. And so it's really cool that you were able to talk to him and he got a chance to see your book and give you uh, such a I guess a quotable quote, such a promotional quote. And so that gives maybe some more insight as to why that one performs so well. And yeah, I, mean, I think uh, sequels can always be a challenge if they're in, in niches, just like you said. Oh yeah. Jamie was fantastic. I mean, I, I just asked him, I just reached out. I said, you know, um, you know, you've 
you know, I've learned so much from you um, and I'd love to give you a copy of the book. Would you be interested in, in checking out my book? And and uh, he said, yeah, absolutely. He checked it out and I asked him if we wouldn't mind doing the forward for it. And he said he would be glad to. And he wrote a fantastic forward and, um, you know, thought, you know, thought very highly of my book. And like he said that, uh, you know, he wish he had something like that uh, when he started out. So it was it was fantastic. And it's just a case of, you know, you know, somebody else in the board game industry helping somebody that's not quite as far along. And uh, yeah, it's just super appreciated. And, and I'm, I'm sure it didn't uh, hurt the book sales as well. Yeah. And, and so you can find all three on Amazon. Is there anywhere else that you sell your books? Um, I have the first two as well on my website, boardgamedesigncourse.com. And, uh, but yeah, otherwise you can find them on Amazon. You can get the audiobook, the ebook, or the paperback for each of them. Perfect. Do you feel that the work that you put into these books are going to help you? Will your name be known more when you decide to crowdfund, crowdfund this next project? Because those books were all made after Cunning Linguistics. And so obviously you didn't have that background built up yet. Yeah, I, d- I don't know if the, the books themselves will will help me in terms of you know building up a name because it, the books were really geared towards game designers as opposed to uh, gamers and, and people who might necessarily like my games. I mean, uh, when you think about it, all game designers love games. We wouldn't be... Uh, doing it otherwise so i'm sure there'll be you know a few uh you know just because they've heard my name and that kind of thing but i i think just the the experience kind of helps me uh, especially my the second book where I, I talk to a lot of people i have uh, over a dozen people that i talk to and then over a dozen other publishers just asking them the questions you know what are you looking for uh, when somebody pitches to you what are you you know what are you know what are the important things to think about as a designer and and I think those all help to influence me and, and hopefully anybody else that uh, reads the book as well. But I think it's just always a case of just always learning. I mean, I've learned so much from James Matthews' blog and uh, Jamie Stegmar's blog and his book and all these other things, podcasts, uh, your podcast as well. Uh, there, there's always so many things you can you can learn from. And, and hopefully, you know, if you're learning those things, you're applying them and that'll you know, generate, you know, more and more success, or, or at least you'll get uh, closer to that success by just learning to take that in and then taking action on those things. Yeah, taking action, that's a key word. Um, I, I'm doing all kinds of learning. Every one of these podcasts is a learning experience for me. It's exactly why I do them. And then I can share that learning with others yeah, with no expectations. I mean, the, the podcast is free. I don't charge you to come on the show. I don't charge people to listen and I don't do ads because this is all about learning. So I like that approach that you have with your books as well, that it's nice if you can get something out of it, but it's also uh, an excellent experience to just keep propelling yourself forward, which brings us to what forward is. That's your next project, which is called, now forgive me if I get this wrong, uh, Relics of Rajavahara. Did I pronounce that right? Rajavahara. It's a very, very, very close. It's a, yeah, it's, Rajavahara. It's, a little, it's a little bit of a tongue twister almost. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a solo puzzly game. And uh, where I came up with the idea was uh, there's a, a game called uh, Crossing. I think it's called Crossing Rivers. It's a game from Think Fun. And uh, my nephew had that. And it's this, this neat little game where you kind of set up different levels and you have to use these wooden planks. And, and it's basically getting getting from A to B, like solving your goal by moving these planks around it's a little thinky game and it was kind of a combination of that and some um, nintendo games really like old nes games like uh, fire and ice in particular which was one of my favorites and uh, adventures of lolo and kickle cubicle and um, some other like puzzly kind of mobile games and that kind of thing where you're you're trying to move things around and and create a goal but i thought i haven't really seen that done in the board game world in terms of like a 
3D tactile kind of a puzzly game. So that kind of came together with the idea of, you know, having a board and having an adventurer that has to move around, push these blocks, um, solve puzzles, uh, push, descend, you know, get items, you know, defeat people. Um, and, and every level would be different. You'd get a card and, and you set up a different level every time and they would escalate and get more challenging. And then I came up with the idea of having different types of blocks. So you start off with crates and then the next level, you know, you open up something new and then something else in the next level. So it's, you're always learning something else. And it's almost kind of tutorial-like in some ways because the first couple levels on each floor are, are a little more basic. You're just kind of getting the feel for the moves. And then you open, you know, you finish the first 10 levels, you open up a new box and you're on another floor and you get something else new and then you're learning how that works and and then that they just keep escalating over difficulty so that's really the the idea behind it it's uh, really like a puzzle game uh, but also it's beyond the 50 levels that are the campaign i didn't want somebody to just play the game and and just be kind of done with it and put it on their shelf i wanted to have some more replay value value so um, i've been developing and i'm almost completed uh, extra challenges so once you've finished the 50 levels you'll be able to open some replayable solo challenges that introduce some new obstacles and new challenges to some of the previous levels that you've done before that make them, you know, much, much uh, more intricate. Yeah, I love it. And uh, I've seen your images online. I've seen you uh, posting and uh, kind of pre-marketing the game already. And it's, it's not Nice to see, and I played it on Tabletop Simulator as well. And the, the visuals of it are great. You're actually using an artist that I'm familiar with, Tristan Rawson, does some fantastic art for icons and characters and um, just boards in general. He's really, really good at what he does. And so the visuals are great. And then playing the game itself, um, me trying to figure out a level just to be able to do a video was kind of fun. I was trying to push blocks around digitally and uh, figure out how. Um, I think there were the ice blocks that were a little bit more tricky than the wood blocks. And then there was these green blocks that wouldn't move at all. And I had to just figure out how could I navigate all this stuff around. And um, I could picture doing it physically on the table and, you know, trying to twist my head around and trying to uh, move around pieces and then put them back. I could visualize myself doing that on a table just as much as I was in digital space. And it really does uh, get mind going. And um, my wife enjoys uh, the occasional Sudoku or a puzzle find or a, a puzzle itself. And so this reminded me of that experience where you're just on your own trying to solve something just for the sake of solving. And, and you've got a ton of replayability in there with those 50 levels. Um, not only just to do once, I'm sure if you went back to the same level after doing all 50, you'd probably forget how to do the 10th level again. Uh, so a really cool concept that you have there. And um, yeah, your thoughts about those games that inspired you. It, it reminded me that my son has this little game at home and it's just little frog shaped pegs that go in this little uh, grid and it comes with about a dozen cards that get harder and harder. So it just reminded me of that exact concept where you know you could do so much with so little uh, just by adding in the cards for variation. So yeah, I really good work to... with that. Yeah, I really wanted to have kind of a little bit of that video game feel where there's it's kind of like introduction, kind of a tutorial, and then it builds and builds and you get it like it's, you know, you beat one level to move on to the next. You have to beat a floor, kind of like, you know, Mario, you get through one four and then you move to world two and that type of thing. And, and there's new things and it looks different and new enemies and that kind of thing. So that that kind of a feel. But um, I just want to say I really appreciated when you went through a tabletop simulator and, and uh, played the game and watch the video and I remember watching through the first time you played just to make sure you got all the rules down and everything. It's, it's always fun to watch other people play and try to figure out the rules and uh, not the rules, but try to figure out the, the puzzles and the challenges um, 
that it's 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 always really fun because everybody thinks so differently and and the puzzles in the game there's not necessarily just one way to do it somebody might try one way somebody might try a completely different way and they might both end up with the same result uh, whereas some levels you really have to do everything almost practically in the in the same order and that type of thing and uh yeah, Tr Tristam though did a fantastic job, and and he's great about you know sharing the art and getting feedback uh, from other people, and uh, great to work with. So I'd absolutely recommend Tristam if anybody's looking for graphic designer slash artist slash illustrator. He kind of does it all. Yeah, he, he fills those buckets up quite well. And like you said, trying to replay, I recorded or I recorded a blind play test that I showed you, and then I replayed the same level, and I completely forgot how I solved the puzzle, and I ended up thinking about it a few minutes longer and have it solved it a different way. So that was a, a neat thing about the game is some of the levels do have more than one way to finish it off. Now mm -hmm. you, you have evolved this game over time. You started with um, probably just sketch paper and moving stuff around on your table, um, putting paper on the sides of paper cubes, and then you ended up creating prototypes and whatnot. So uh, at what point did you decide that instead of taking this to a publisher, you wanted to do it yourself and become an independent publisher again? Well, I, I thought the game was fairly niche. Um, yeah, I've been playtesting with uh, different groups and taking it to conventions and that type of thing. And um, I'd been getting some some good, solid feedback. And I wasn't sure if I really wanted to approach a publisher with it. I had uh, a little bit of interest from a from a publisher at one point, um, but you know they 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 were kind of questioning like how do I how do I market this? I'm not sure I'm going to market this, and it might be a little bit pricey to to create because originally I had over 50 cubes and they're all one inch solid wood blocks. So it's going to add weight and it's going to be a lot of cost. So um, I really set out to say, okay, how could I go about doing this myself? If like, if I couldn't find a publisher, could I do this myself? And I'd seen the success of some other solo games on Kickstarter. They'd done really well. And I talked to some other creators who did solo games and, and kind of got that feeling that, you know, if, if I'm able to build enough of a following for this, um, it's much easier to find, you know, one person to play a game rather than, you know, a party game or something like that, for example. So you can always find one person. So it was yeah, it, yeah. it wasn't too bad in terms of um, trying to find individuals to play the game. Oh, just, you know, just sit down and play one one level. Um, you just take a couple minutes. If you want to play more than that, that's great. So it was very easy and approachable for, for people. So it made my job a little bit easier. I bet um, you can't just play once. It's like the old Blaze. <laughs> I bet you can't just just play one level but i mean it, it's not like one game where you you know sit down and, and you know you're in for you know 45 minutes an hour two hour game like you, you can play as much or as little as you want and it's it's that great feeling of playing one level or you know failing not failing a level but you know doing something out of place and then saying oh i did something wrong and then being able to reset and try again and that and then having, having that feeling of like oh okay i accomplished this after i tried it you know two or three times um so for for me i saw it as an opportunity i thought you know i want to i want to give self-publishing another try at some point and this game just kind of seemed to work with that and i started to engage with people and i thought you know what i'm going to go out and i'm going to get the art done and i'm going to you know build a group around this i'm going to uh, you know try to find some reviewers and, and you know go through the whole process and and try it on my own and you know if, if i fail then you know i'm failing of my own volition but uh at least i've tried <laughs> and uh i i think it um i think it's also a unique enough game, but also familiar enough to people. So people who have played, you know, some of those NES games that I've mentioned or Rush Hour, 
um, or, or some other games or just like, you know, Sudokus and other other games and puzzles, like you said, um, even people who like chess and that type of thing might might really uh, go for the game. So I think there was an audience for it. Um, it was a little niche. And, you know, there's just an opportunity. And, and I was thinking, you know, do I launch this in fall? When am I going to do it? I was planning on going to Essen and I thought maybe I'll do some demos there. But, you know, with everything happening, Essen is canceled and all these other events have got canceled. So I had more and more time to be able to focus on the game and not going to conventions. So I thought, you know what, the game's almost there. Let's start building this audience and I'm going to launch it. So I'm going to launch it in July instead of instead of the fall. And I mean, the other thing is with uh, with COVID and so many people being home and not being able to get out to their gaming groups, I think the opportunity is just there for people to to play solo games more. And I think a, a lot of people that I gave copies to were really appreciative of it because they, they couldn't get out and play other games with other people, but they it was just a very enjoyable experience for them regardless. Yeah, and even if COVID does subside somewhat, there's always a possibility of a second wave, plus everybody's perspective on life is permanently distorted. No matter what happens with COVID, I think Solo still has a strong place in the gaming industry. So you're, I think you're taking advantage and uh, getting in place at a good time and, uh, and also during even, a bad time. Even be, sorry, Russ, um, just going to say, even before that, the, the Solo board gaming community has been growing way before COVID, too. Um, there's there's Facebook groups with over 20,000 people in it just dedicated to solo gaming. Um, and there's multiple. There's about four or five different Facebook groups. There's a, a board game group for one player guild. So it's 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 something that's growing, too, because not everybody has a spouse or a partner that likes playing games or, you know, maybe they like playing games more than the other people in their family or, you know, they're living alone, whatever the case may be. So even well before COVID, this um this, this cohort of people who like playing solo games and want different experiences in them was growing already. So, I mean, the opportunity was already there for sure. Very good. And now you're doing something, and obviously you've learned this through your time uh, because it wasn't done with cunning linguistics, but you have started to build a crowd and you've done pre-marketing. So, I, like I said, I've seen your Facebook group. I'm part of that. I've seen your tabletop simulator. I'm part of that. I've seen your advertisements that are now live on Facebook, which means um, you're already doing that four to six weeks ahead of time. So you're definitely following some of the mantras that the industry has started when it comes to Kickstarter crowd building. Uh, so is that all stuff that you had anticipated doing from the get-go or did you, um, what was your philosophy on building the crowd? Yeah, most of that was was planned. I mean, I I think just you know getting a lot of organic uh, feedback and, and traffic and that type of thing just through you know posting pictures and just telling people you have a Facebook group. Um, there's you know you can get notifications from the, the Kickstarter page, um, building an email list. And uh, one trick that I that I learned that might be helpful for others too, and I learned this from another podcast. I, I, unfortunately, I can't remember who said this, but um, you can use your Facebook group and your email uh, together really well. So when somebody joins your email list, um, one of the first things, especially if you have a welcome email, you can say, hey, I've also got this Facebook group and we share pictures and we see what other people are doing. Do you want to join it? And there's uh, a link for them, an invite for them to click on and join right there and vice versa. When they join the Facebook group, you can ask them questions like say, do you abide by all the rules of the group? And you can also ask them, are you interested in joining the email list? Because I'll be you know, sharing some other specific things there. And a lot of people say, yeah, for sure. And they leave their email address. So you can get people onto both lists so they'll be more likely to see it and, and be interacting. Um, and then, like you said, just the, the Facebook ads, um, just being active in the communities, uh, talking in the, in the, in the solo uh, Facebook groups and that type of thing, but not being salesy and just being, you know, not just saying, look at my game, look at my game, but, you know, interacting with people, talking about games that they're playing, talking about games that you enjoy and just 
getting that camaraderie well, well before I even say, hey, I'm working on a game too. But but also just asking people, you know, I've, I've got uh, a game going in print and play communities and saying, uh, would you like to try this out? Uh, going in solo gaming groups and say, hey, uh, you know, are, would anybody be interested in this? Um, having your artist or, or myself post some of the art and, and just even generically saying that, just like, hey, what, what do you guys think of this? A lot of people are like, oh, what's, what's this game? Tell me all about it. And then that can just lead to a conversation. So rather than posting your uh, Facebook group or posting your email sign up or anything right off the bat, just, you know, talking about different things. And then when people ask, then, you know, you've kind of got that invite to give them a bit more information, which feels a lot more natural than really like pushing something, which usually doesn't work very well. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed that it's kind of that, um, organic way where you're sharing those images just because you want to and if they happen to want to link great but if not then at least you've done your share and um, so both methods can work and the closer you get to your launch day the kind of the more sales you kind of have to get and it's not necessarily to to force it down people's throats but it's more to make sure that anybody that actually would like the game has some visibility to it because in kickstarter there's such a small window to back a game when it's at a its lowest price and its most potential to make the game better that you really want to hit that audience hard i mean in my last game i still sold about 400 units after it was already created but if those 400 were sold before it might have helped unlock uh, better components because i would have had more faith that there were funds to support that so um, anybody that's launching a kickstarter the more attention you can get it on early in these different ways whether it's organic or um, forced ads or whatever or you really can build your platform that way. So I love that you're doing that with Relics because I think you have a ton of potential with this game just from the the true solo experience. So it's And it's that puzzle niche that I haven't seen uh, to the extent that you have it going. So that's really cool. Um, and as you build it up, you must have in mind some kind of thoughts for, uh, you mentioned component costs and publishers not interested in some of those um the amount of cubes you might have. So you probably have costed out your game and looked at art costs and shipping costs. So do you have a funding goal established now or do you have one that you're going to be announcing soon? Um, I'm still working on the final numbers. And yeah, part of that was just kind of doing some, you know, putting that on the, the dev hat, <laughs> the development hat, and, uh, just stepping away from being a game designer and saying, do I need all these things in this game? So I had, I think, 52 cubes in the, in the, in the game originally, 52 wooden blocks, one inch wooden blocks. And I, I pared that down. I was able to get it down to 38. Uh, that was like the bare minimum that I needed in order to be able to develop the levels in a way that they were all challenging. But it, it, was, it was a good exercise because I could have just said, oh, well, this game's just going to wind up being more expensive. But uh, it's, it's a good lesson, um, whether you do it yourself or, or get somebody else to do it, to do some development work and ask those hard questions. Do you need this component here? What does this add to it? That kind of thing. So that was kind of the first thing to help bring the, the cost down from a manufacturing standpoint. Um, so yeah. I don't have I don't have a final funding goal set. Uh, right now I'm looking at somewhere around uh, 10,000 Canadian, which is a little over 7,000 US. Uh, but I'm still working through the numbers because, uh, as you've probably experienced, um, I have to kind of make those tough decisions about um, shipping in particular. Am I going to be uh, sh doing shipping separately? Is that going to be part of the funding goal? Am I going to charge the shipping after in the pledge manager? So, uh, or am I going to be subsidizing part of that shipping and the cost and that type of thing? So I want to make sure that um, the funding goal is um, as low as it can be while I can still do that minimum print run of, uh, you know, 500 copies of the game without losing money, obviously. Um, but I, yeah. I want to be able to give the best price on, on each individual game uh, to the backers, but also give myself enough buffer, you know, just in case, you know, costs go up, 
um, you know, shipping goes up, that type of thing, because, you know, these are these are changing times and we have to accommodate for that. So um, no numbers set in stone because I'm still uh, still working through the numbers to make sure that they're all set before the campaign. That is a solid and safe answer, Joe. And um, <laughs> but I think I think your uh, your uh, initial thought around 10,000, I think that's pretty fair. I mean, even though you may not have a uh, successfully funded title behind you, you've been part of many successful titles. Are you going to launch under Joe Slack? Or are you going to launch under a uh, game publisher name of your own? Yeah, it's under my name. That's how I started my Kickstarter account, and uh, I, th I think it always just helps. You know, I've been on Kickstarter and, and backed a number of campaigns and, you know, run one at least. So there, there's a little history there, which I think is always good. Um, if I were to start up a, a new one under my company name, Crazy Like a Box, it would be fresh and new. So unless I started backing things like crazy all, all of a sudden, um, you know, it doesn't have that history. And, and it just looks like you're brand new to Kickstarter. And, and that never helps. So um, having any yeah. kind of history there is something that somebody can look back and then say, oh, OK, you know, they're they're not new to this. They're not just coming out here to make money they've been involved in this community, I think always helps. Yeah, and even um, having a little blurb at the bottom where it says about me, you put a note on there about your book as well and that adds some professional credentials to you also. Now, is there any professional reviewers that we can anticipate playing your game? Is there or somebody you know that likes solo games that'll show off your game well? Yeah, I've, I've actually managed to line up about uh, somewhere between eight and ten reviewers, uh, which has been fantastic. Um, most of them I reached out to, but I actually had some reach out to me because they saw some picture of the game and they said, oh, I got to try this. Can I can I do it? I'm a reviewer. Would you mind sending me a copy? And in most cases, I said, yes, sure. <laughs> um, so I, I do have quite a few um, reviewers and influencers uh, looking at the game. I don't want to give away uh, too many names yet because I have... Uh, one lined up who's a, a fairly big name and uh, I just don't want to say anything just in case, you know, uh, you know, thing, things don't work out or, you know, he en ends up not liking the game and, and, you know, returns it and says, you know, I'd, I'd rather not do this with you, but uh, <laughs> that's always yeah. the small, the small risk. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what the reviewers say because uh, the few that have already uh, done the reviews have uh, been, been saying very positive things and, and they really enjoy the experience. So I'm just hoping to hear more of that, hopefully. Well, you didn't say any specific names, but I have this funny feeling there's a Rado in there somewhere. That's just my my intuition kicking in. But you just um, never know. Yes, you'll, you'll just have to wait till the campaign to find out. Uh, but if anything, Rado is quite the picky reviewer, and I've made a few games of my own, and he hasn't said yes to mine yet. So if he says yes to you, fantastic. Good on you, Joe. All right, Joe. So that's fantastic information about your reviewers and about your game. And you mentioned that you play some games with your wife. Maybe just on a personal note, what's one of your favorite two-player games that you've enjoyed with her? Oh, so many. Um, yeah, not necessarily a strictly two-player game, but uh, you know, we we play a lot of games that just you know play well at two players. But we play a lot of uh, Azul, which we've been uh, playing online with some uh, some other friends, some some couples online. We found some ways to. I, lo I love the tiles in that game. That's, those oh, are fantastic. Beautiful. <laughs> um, and I mean that 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 kind of game just makes you think like, okay, I will, when I make a game, I want to have that same kind of tactile experience, which is kind of what I was going for with Relics, having the, you know those cubes and and, and everything. Um, but you know. Yeah. That and uh, Baron Park. We love Quacks of Predlingburg. Um, games like Splendor and Century Spice Road, For Sale. You know, there's so many, so many great games out there. Awesome. So obviously you got some experience playing games just as much as you do designing games. And those are some good names there. I haven't tried Quacks yet. I've, my wife keeps wanting to to get it, and I I haven't jumped the hoop yet on it. I, I play drafting games and I played tile games. I haven't played tile drafting games. Or um, what do you think of Quacks? 
Oh, it's great. It's uh, I, I'd say the main mechanic is really about bag building, and it's it's very very much press your luck, and it's uh, also the game that my son, who's nine years old, always beats us at. Um, I'm not sure if he's looking in the bag before he pulls out or not, but uh, he uh, he he always seems to beat us at least by a few points, and it's it's a lot of fun um, because it's simultaneous action. Everybody's playing at the same time. There's really very very little downtime, and uh, yeah, every game's a little different, and we haven't got to it yet. But one of the cool things is. Uh, all the different things that you can purchase through the game, they can change. So you can have one setup and then you say the next time you play, okay, let's do an alternate setup. So, um, you know, these, these particular things that I'm, that I'm pulling out um, of the bag, they do something completely different now and, and they score right. differently and that type of thing. So it adds a lot more replay value. Awesome. I may have to check it out then. Uh, yeah, maybe sure. it'll be a gift gift this year at some point. Well, Joe, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I think uh, your Kickstarter experience with Cunning Linguistics turning into the Kingdom's Candy and King of Indecision through other publishers and then through your plans that are coming up for Relics of Raja Fahara will um, give some inspiration and some education to some of those creators out there who are still kind of going through their own stumbling blocks and they're just trying to figure out what they should do next. So you brought a lot of experience to the podcast and I absolutely love that. And your book, I think could be a great thing for somebody that's listening to this podcast to check out. Uh, and it's a really good price. You can get it online or I think you can get a digital too, can't you? An audiobook? Is yep, that right? Ebook, ebook, audiobook, and paperback. Look, you're all over the place. Awesome. And for those of you listening to the podcast, if there's one thing you can do to encourage and motivate other Kickstarter journeys, just take a minute and a dollar or two, support a project that catches your eye today. You might not be able to buy all those cool games out there, but every little bit helps pad their bottom line and moves their project in the right direction. Feel free to subscribe or follow. We've got some more Kickstarter journeys ahead. Uh, all kinds of great creators love sharing these stories with you because it's such a fun hobby. And Joe, thanks again for being here. It's been great. Well, thanks so much for having me, Wes. It was a lot of fun. All right. Take care, and I look forward to seeing Relics in July. Bye. Awesome. Thanks, Wes.